Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name continues to be Dr. Katherine Troyer, and joining me as always is Anthony Tresca. Oh, hello, and to our first-time listeners, a very special thank you. I Also, thank you to people who have listened to us before, but very special thank you if this is your first time listening in. And if it is your first time, a little bit about this podcast. Yes, so this is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. We love horror. We like talking about horror. Specifically, we like to talk about things that shouldn't work, but somehow do, or things that should work and for many people do, but somehow don't. For us, at least. For us, at least, of course, is is all our opinions. Today, we are going to be talking about the 2008 film, The Strangers, and this is one of those things that, for many people, this movie did not work, but for us, quite enjoyed it. Absolutely. I remember seeing this, this film in theater, actually. And when I see a, a horror movie in theater that I really like, I like begin to clap like Hercules style because I'm just so excited. And I just distinctly remember <laughs> being so excited because everyone else was so terrified. And so for me, from just the earliest memories, I associate this film very positively. So before we get into discussing the film proper, uh, a little bit of framework t- to set us up. I like to start these episodes by having... Uh, theoretical framework that both acknowledges my own research, which is in the horror genre, but also I think becomes a way that we can sort of frame our conversation and circle back to those ideas throughout. And I've gone in some of the previous episodes with sort of bigger ideas like the object or nostalgia. For this one, I actually wanted to go a little bit more focused because I think there's an article that does some really important things in talking about The Strangers that makes this film deserving of some more critical attention. Interesting little tidbit before you get to this actual article. Uh, In contrast to the films that we've done before, this is one where even on the Wikipedia page about this film, there are references to scholarly articles in support of this film. So while the critics may not have been a huge fan of it, scholars do seem to have lots of work written about it. So there was a 2013 edited collection entitled Murders and Acquisitions, Representations of the Serial Killer in Popular Culture. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's got a picture from American Psycho on the front. It's just all filled with darkness on the inside. Mm-hmm. But the, the article that I want to talk about is, is entitled There's Blood on the Walls, which is a quote from the film, Serial Killing as Post-9-11 Terror in the Strangers by Philip L. Simpson. What Simpson talks about in this particular article that is is worth thinking about is that he really is framing it as a post 9-11 text. And this is something that if you look at scholarship on American horror, there's a lot of people that say that there's a clear dividing line between horror pre 9-11 and post 9-11 because our culture changed because Mm -hmm. of that event. And there's people that point out, hey, look at how many zombie films exploded after 9-11 as just one example. But Simpson, in talking about The Strangers, says that this is a film that Brian Bertino admits 
straight up, I wanted this to have a sort of nostalgic feel to it. I wanted it to feel like Good. it could be Back any home. Back to the 1970s and the films of the that era. Absolutely. If you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you are going to be familiar with what you're about to see in this film in terms of the setup and everything. Uh, he, uh, he really talks about making it from the victim's perspective and making you really, really, as an audience member, be just as afraid of what's about to happen because it's happening to you along with the characters in the film. Yes, and because we didn't mention it, Brian Bertino is the writer and director yep. of the film. He also wanted to find a house for, as in terms of location scouting that would feel like it could be anyone's house, right? So this is where Simpson is, is beginning his discussion of the strangers as a post-9-11 text. And he says, okay, what is the biggest fear or fears that came out of 9-11 on a sort of national cultural level? And one of the big fears is that maybe there's not a good answer to the question of why. In Friday the 13th, why? Because as, you know, Jason Voorhees' mom lost her child to negligent uh, camp workers, and so she's going to seek revenge. In um, Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger was outright killed by the um, parents, or at least left to die in a burning building, right? Because he was being a creeper. Halloween, which is a little less, you know, obvious, it's still like, why is he doing this? Well, maybe it's not about Lori specifically, but it's about the town, right? There's mm -hmm. always really good reasons. And there's usually a reason that the victims will be killed as well. Yes. Usually they've smoked or Ooh. they're having illicit sexual oh, behaviors. No. And so they have to die. And the good ones will usually make it out. Yes. And, and this is like, we've come to depend upon this formula. So Simpson is saying that that's part of what makes The Strangers so powerful is that as a post 9-11 text, it's saying, well, or maybe you died because you were just home. I mean, we actually like, that's why are you doing this? Because, because you, you were, were home. home. It's an actual exchange in the film. Exactly. And, and in that way, Simpson, and I, and I very much uh, agree with him and what he's saying here, is saying that this film becomes very much a commentary on the fears that we have now, which are still about invasions, right? Are still, you know, we've had invasion narratives uh, like Straw Dogs from the 70s. That's not new. But what's going to be new is, is this sense that maybe there's nothing we can do about it. Maybe it has nothing to do with us at all, but we're still going to have to face the consequences. So you would think, right, with such an amazing, amazing, like, inner workings of the American psyche, that this film would have just been, like, praised and lauded. But as Anthony can tell yeah. you. That's not quite the case. Uh, reactions to this film, I'll get to specifically later, but they were they were quite mixed. A uh, little bit of background information about the film itself. Uh, the Strangers is a 2008 slasher film written and accidentally directed by Brian Bertino. I'll get into that accidental Yay. a little bit later. Uh, Bertino was, uh, he studied cinematography at UT Austin. Then he moved to LA where he worked as a gaffer, which is a lighting technician. Uh, and he was just writing screenplays on the side. And I think you can tell that he has the chops. Yeah. He's very, very trained. He knows what he's doing with the camera. And it shows. It does show. Uh, and so he actually submitted this screenplay for a fellowship with the Academy of the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, where it reached the quarterfinals. Ooh. Didn't win, but it was enough to get him into meetings with big entertainment houses, and his screenplay was eventually sold to Universal Studios. This script was originally called The Faces, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, not quite as uh, not quite as punchy and sexy as the strangers. I or as relevant. Or as yeah. relevant. The faces. So what? We've Although, seen faces. With that said, they are pretty creepy masks. They are very creepy masks, and those masks were actually handpicked by uh, Bertino because he wanted them to feel like they could just be masks that anyone could pick up from any store anywhere. You know, I think it's worth just kind of pausing for a moment and in your head thinking back to all the different iconic masks that we have in the horror genre. Masks matter, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The ghost face killer, baby face from Happy Uh, Death Death Day. Day. Uh, But also, you know, the Halloween mask, the um, hockey mask. I mean, masks are really important, so I'm glad that he paid attention to that. Yeah, Every, everything in this film was very meticulous, it seems. Uh, this was his third screenplay that he had ever written, and this film was inspired by true events from Bertino's childhood. And the true nature of this film is something we will definitely be coming back to a little bit later because it's something extremely noteworthy, and it's a very famous thing about the film. So just keep that little tidbit in the back of your mind. Yes. Uh, so, like I said, Bertino was not originally attached to direct, but after two other directors dropped out, and Universal actually passed this project on to one of the smaller companies that it also owns, Rogue Pictures, Rogue Pictures approached Bertino to direct. And so filming for this film began in October of 2006, and it was produced with a $9 million budget. And I like how you talked about the house was something that was very important. It was. There was a lot of thought given to this house, uh, because although it was shot uh, in South Carolina in a 2,000 square foot house that was built for the film, it was specifically modeled after 1970s ranch houses from Texas that were familiar to Bertino, uh, because he grew up in Texas. He was a Texas native. And another just interesting thing about production was this film was shot chronologically. Really? Almost entirely chronologically. Interesting. I don't think I ever knew that part. I knew about some of the stuff about the place, because that was what I was really most interested in. That adds an intriguing element. Yeah, and that led to uh, the lead actress, Liv Tyler, actually describing this film as the most intense film uh, role of her entire career. It was emotionally, physically draining more than any other role she's ever been in. So despite all of that, uh, the reception to this film when it was released was... uh, it was not great. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score is a 48%. The Metacritic score is 47. And this is another one of those films where the audience score, uh, they they kind of do support the critics on this one. They take their side. Rotten Tomatoes uh, audience score is a 48. The exact same score as wow. the critics. Uh, Metacritic is a 7.9, so higher yeah, there. That's, that's, high. that's pretty good. Uh, and But the IMDb score is a 6.2. So, like, 48% is really that's low. That's really bad. That's, I mean, below I mean, that's, 50. Yeah, I mean, anything <laughs> below 50, right? If we're doing letter grades, I mean, it's like a failing grade. That you, they, this film failed. Except for in the financial department. It, against its $9 million budget, it grossed $82.4 million worldwide, spawning a sequel, The Strangers Pray at Night, that came out March 9th, 2018. Which I was very excited about. And I'm trailing off because I... It played more as a satire and, like, served kind of only to undermine some of the stronger points from the yeah, from this first film, I think. I, I agree. I think that what is so smart about this film was lost in the sequel. We've made an effort when we're really excited about a film 
to still take a moment and point out that, you know, it's by no means a perfect film. I don't know if I've ever seen a perfect film. Yeah, it's extremely rare to produce something that couldn't use some minor adjustments. Right. And and so I think it's also a good way for us to make sure that we're not sort of, you know, like, squeeing too much. We're not just like, fan-boying-girling yeah. over things. Yeah, because that, that's not what we want to do. I do have to admit, with that said, that my criticism is a little softer than it, it has been for other films that I like. Mm-hmm. I think that this film skirts that line and goes right up to it and maybe tippy toes just a little over the line of not giving us quite enough development of the characters to really care about and them. you're talking about the two main characters. Yes, I'm talking about uh, Kristen, Kristen and, and James. James. You know, I, I don't need, like, the huge backstory of, of why she decided to refuse his proposal. Like, I don't think I need that. But it's just that without that, you know, there are times that I'm I'm not sure... If I'm completely saddened by the idea that Kristen and James might not make it through. Other than the fact that I've now been in it, the trenches with them for so long. And and that is a hard line to, to sort of traverse. Because if you want people to feel tension, you do have to make sure that they are invested in the situation. And I'm absolutely there in terms of investment. But I do think that if you look at the actual script, like if you were to take away all the other things that mm-hmm. add the tension, it's a light script. Very light. I mean, there's a lot of sequences with no dialogue. Yes. And there's just a lot of, there's a lot of silence. I think this film comes just about as close as possible to being perfect in terms of finding that balance, like having a script that is so brief and condensed, but managing to not make a film that should only be 30 minutes. But there are a couple of times it goes over that line a little bit where, you know, Kristen does something that just feels really not smart and I'm not willing to give her any slack because I don't really care about her as a person. So that would be my one criticism if I were to have one that's a softer one. And that's a pretty, I mean, that's a kind of universal criticism. A lot of people in their critiques of of this film have been like, underdeveloped characters hate it. See, and that's that's where I I don't think I'd go to hate. I would go to dislike potentially a little bit. Yeah. I've got uh, a little bit of a bigger problem yeah. with uh, the film than you do. Although, again, I still do very, very much enjoy this film. I just feel like this film uh, went on for a bit too long. And you're really only talking like minutes, And right? I really am. Like, when I say a bit too long, I mean a bit too long. I think the film should have ended uh, right after the masked strangers, they... Uh, they ask the question. The, the people are like, why, why did you do this? Because you're home. And then they kill them. And they do their final walk around around the house. And then they leave and they get in their car to drive away. I think the film should have ended right there. Hmm. There's another sequence that gets tacked on where they see these two young boys distributing uh, religious uh, pamphlets. And there's this exchange, like, are you a sinner? And they say, sometimes. And then they get back in the car and it's like, it'll get easier. And I'm like, well... So I didn't like the dialogue. I did kind of like that image of them driving away. Just just because I thought that it was neat, this idea that they are so normal. Looking right, this isn't like Jason Voorhees, who's super gross. Or Freddy Krueger, who's super gross. Um, I liked that part. Mm-hmm. But, but you're right. The conversation feels a little forced it, in a film that hasn't tried to force us along it's, elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. We don't really care about these strangers as characters because they're not characters. They're random actors of chaos. And so having 
this exchange feels unnecessary. The film could have ended with them just getting in the car and the credits are playing as you watch the car drive away. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have been a much more ominous ending because yes. then it sends them on their way and you don't know quite where they're going, but you think they're probably going to do this again. Now, that said, I do like this more than the original ending that mm. was attached to this film. There were some quite substantial post-production changes made to this film. Uh, this is from Deep Cuts uh, on Editing the Strangers. This is a, a special feature on the Blu-ray edition of the film. The original screenplay and the footage that was shot, the three masked strangers actually reveal their faces on camera. Oh, that would have been bad. Yeah. So after that sequence in which Kristen and James are stabbed, the strangers wander around the house... They clean up the parts of the crime scene before dressing in Christian and James' clothes, and they show their faces throughout the entirety of that, thus ruining the ambiguity that the film tries and succeeds with these three strangers. Yeah, we've criticized other films for ambiguity issues, for being ambiguous when it shouldn't have been. This is a film that needs to keep that ambiguity if it's going to be doing the yeah. things that make this film fundamentally frightening. And I mean... Clearly, after they changed it, because after the test screenings, it was decided by the producers that the strangers should remain unseen to the audience. But this required a lot. The editor talks about how it required all of the sequences following the stabbing to be very carefully edited so that you couldn't see their faces, even though their masks were off in a lot oh, of these sequences. Yeah, that makes sense. I will say, too, the other, if I were to complain about something about the conclusion, I don't think Christian should have stayed alive. At the yeah, end. they come back to that and... The boys, I believe, they wander into that house, and you see her reach up, oh, and, they, and she makes that sound, and you see she's alive. Right, and we hear that screaming, and yeah. I think it was unnecessary. This is a perfect example where we want the film to end with that Schrodinger's cat. She will be simultaneously alive and dead until we find out. And, and that's nice, right? Because, again, that plays on the ambiguity of it all. And they, if the film ends with us not seeing that final exchange where they talk about oh, it gets easier, and just shoving it down your throat that, yes, they're going to murder again. They're going to do this exact thing again. It leaves it, their ending, also ambiguous. And I think it just, just by a couple of minutes, missed the mark in nailing the ending. No, I think, now that I'm hearing you talk about it more, I can, I can agree. I think, I don't know if I would be quite as firm in my editing hand as you have would want to be, because <laughs> um, I think you would just kind of, like, shave off whole minutes. But I would definitely be very selective in what I kept and what I didn't. So, despite our problems with this film, overall, we both think it's very, very well done. This is a film that I watch almost every Halloween because it holds up. And it holds up because you still know, like, you know, by the time you've watched it about five times, <laughs> you know when the strangers are going to come out at the specific moments. But the reason I think this film holds up is in large, if not exclusive, um, part due to the cinematography. I mean, it shows that he went to school and studied cinematography because the camera work in this film and some of the shots that he makes are just so exquisite. And a lot of the times, the fact that he's able to take shots that are primarily just very still, he, he knows how to hold the camera still and shows that restraint that a lot of seasoned directors don't do. 
especially seasoned directors, I think, of slasher films. Mm-hmm. Because let's face it, when you think of a slasher film, one of the first things that probably comes to mind is the chase scene. Yeah. Right? Especially where, like, the girl is running full out, and the thing that's chasing her is walking really slowly. And, and the camera is shaking. There's something really frightening, in part because I think we're unaccustomed to seeing it in the stillness of this film. Mm-hmm. Because you keep waiting for something to happen, and nothing, not even your camera's perspective is changing. Nothing is happening And then you're like, dear heavens, when is something going to happen? Because you can feel the tension boiling up. This film is clearly building towards something, which is something I quite enjoy about this film, is the tension does not break. Once the girl comes to the door, the film is just, it's got its pedal to the metal, and it does not let up. And I would argue that it doesn't even start from zero to 60. It starts more like from 25, because of the fact that we begin in Medius Race. And that means we don't see the wedding or the party that they're at. We don't see the refusal of the proposal. We start really after they have been shattered as a couple. And so from the beginning, we're like, huh, what's happening? And then it's like, oh, no, what's happening? So Mm -hmm. I I would argue that it starts already beginning to give us that tension that we're going to just carry through. Yeah. But it starts with a different type of tension. Not necessarily of a sense of horror that it will get to, but... Tension nonetheless. Because we've all been in similar emotional places where our world feels like it has shattered. And then we're going to see, right, that that is going to be taken to a very literal level by Mm -hmm. the end of the film. For me, if I were to pick one scene Uh that I just, you know, like, this is the scene that I could watch over and over. And it would be that that scene about 25 minutes into the film when Kristen is alone, James has gone to go get her cigarettes, which is very generous of him considering considering it's like four in the morning and she refused his proposal sure but you know he's gone and the camera work is so clever because we see her she's in the kitchen she's in the kitchen and we see what she can see and we can see that the kitchen because of the shape and layout is you know kind of creates this little like half box effect Mm mm-hmm and then we see the gentleman who's the the main gentleman of the strangers who's wearing what kind of looks like a Potato, potato sack, sack? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which all I can think of is probably super edgy. But but we see him watching her. Then the camera shifts a little bit, and when she turns back to face that area, right, because she's turned from facing the house to facing the window where the sink is, and then she turns back. He's gone. Not due to she hears anything. She no. had just was reaching to get some uh, I some think water. Was, I think uh, some yeah some type of drink, and then we are we follow her vision. We as the audience members, we follow her vision, and then by the time she turns back around, that figure is gone. And now, there's no zooming in on this figure. Nope. There's no, like, sound that draws your attention and is like, oh, I've got to be looking for this creepy thing. It's just there. And this is really powerful because cinematography often does the close-ups. It does the, like, zoom-in because it can. It can force you to look at whatever the cinematographer wants you to look at. But in this case, they wanted you to see this entire expanse. And if you catch the super scary thing, ooh, good. If you don't, though, there's not going to be anything to cue you into that so that you can experience, again, this tension of when is it going to break. We both agree that that might be, I think, our favorite sort of sequence cinematically and i think it's only a minute and a half long yeah it's it's super short you get you blink almost and you could miss it but it's so effective and there are other moments where again i just feel like bertino 
is illustrating both his ability, but also, and I think this is rarer in a director, his willingness to trust us as the audience to understand what he's giving us visually. I think about, it's just a very brief sequence at the very end of the film. So um, after Kristen and James are tied up and the strangers open the curtains and we see that it's broad daylight, it actually goes from an internal shot of the house to an external shot. And externally, from the outside, it it looks like nothing's happening. And, mm-hmm. and you're reminded in that moment of, oh, this could happen in any home. And would you ever know the trauma and the darkness that is happening inside a home if you weren't there in that moment? Yeah, just like you see the, sh- the neighborhood around it. And so we're in a real place. No one did anything. There's no one there. No one came to stop it. And no one discovers it until the next day when the boys come in. And that, I think, is... It would have been so easy to have, you know, a voiceover of saying, you know, like, you never know what's happening behind closed doors or something. But it was just instead a single you know, cut from an interior shot to an exterior shot. And he does this quite a bit where he uses his camera to establish us while also giving us some freedom to to think critically about what we're doing. And this isn't con- like in contrast. We, we talked about establishing shots in It Follows. We did. And how It Follows will use establishing shots to establish things that we do not need established for us, like food. Or panning shots, which are often also used simultaneously as establishing shots, where we're just getting this, you know, horizontal camera movement so that we can see the entire expanse of the room. Mm -hmm. In The Strangers, we actually have a sequence where Kristen is going from the house to the barn that is shot in such a way that we don't even have ever an establishing shot. So even though we know, Mm -hmm. because we're smart people, that there can only be about 20 feet you know maybe a hundred yards max between the house and this barn it feels like forever because we never get the shots intentionally that we would need to be like oh well she should first zig left and then Mm -hmm. zoom right because we are right with that character and i think that's another thing that this the cinematography does really effectively it keeps us as the audience with these characters and this is an intentional choice uh with these characters so that we are really it feels like active participants in what's going on and it creates this almost voyeuristic effect for the audience because you're just watching and you can't do anything about it but you are right there i think that's a really lovely idea because i would actually argue what you just said could serve to counter my slight criticism because maybe this is a film that says character development doesn't have to be in the script it can be entirely visual Mm -hmm. we grow to understand these characters because we are them. We are. It puts us in their place and doesn't give us all of the information. Like, if we'd had a big shot that is like, look at it, it's so close. Well, then we'd be like, well, we're the all-knowing audience members, so, I mean, we can see how stupid and incompetent this character is. But we are right with the character, and so we're like, oh, is this the right place to go? Oh, no, it was over... Oh, wait, yes, no, I don't know. Just like the character. And even that shot or sequence where uh, James ends up killing his his friend his who friend. comes by. Yeah. It's it's not done, I don't think, as a, like a shock and awe moment. I think it's done again because it, it reminds us, like, in that situation, if we can't see around the corner, we can't see around the corner. We don't have the luxury, if we're ever in a situation like that, to have someone be like, but pause, let me give you the establishing shot of this mm-hmm. scene first. And in that, in that situation, if you have been tracked 
by these three killers and something is coming right towards you, you're going to shoot. Absolutely. They do this thing and it's like in horror movies, this is what critics have often been like, there's no, about this film, there's no moment where the heroes get smart and wise up and get their revenge and come back. They're like, that's what usually happens in slasher films. There's at least one character who will come back and rise up. That doesn't happen in this film. This is kind of the closest we get to that. But even that they manage to not do right. They kill an, a seemingly innocent person who is their friend. And if we see this as another example of sort of post 9-11 awareness, if you look at, I'm going to shift gears just slightly, if you look at uh, post-apocalyptic films, pre-9-11 versus post-9-11, we have things like Armageddon with Bruce Willis, where at the end of the day they're like, but by golly, America has a solution. And then America has a solution and then the world survives. Contrast that with a film like The Day After Tomorrow, which says, well, maybe there isn't a solution. Maybe we cannot avoid this fate. And and it's interesting that that shift in the post-apocalyptic genre really does happen pre and post 9-11, where suddenly it's like, well, maybe we aren't prepared for everything. Maybe we won't be able to handle anything. And 9-11 shook some of that belief in, in this, we can do it, it we can it overcome anything. It shook the anything. confidence of the world powers at Absolutely. large and trust in the larger, the system at large to be there for every single person. It's showing the breaking point of that confidence and showing us that perhaps if we cling to that, we're not actually thinking about a real version of how things would go down. And I think another interesting thing is that it doesn't just show that the breaking point has happened in the big cities. the I think it's absolutely important to this film that it is set in kind of a rural atmosphere, a place that is historically been like, we don't need the big government, we have our guns. That's, I mean, that's the stereotype of a rural area. We can defend ourselves. Nothing bad happens here. Small town charm. This is uh, about homesickness for a home that really never existed, that mm-hmm. was never in, in place. And we see that because I think it's important, again, when we think about this, that we remember that this was never a perfect situation. Kristen and James go into this situation already broken metaphorically, right? And I sure. think anyone would take a breakup over, you know, like being hacked to pieces. Right. But, but it is. It's a broken story. It's a broken family. It's a broken home. It's just that as the film progresses, that brokenness intensifies and manifests itself in different ways. Listeners, remember at the top of the podcast, I told you to remember the tidbit about inspired by true events. Well, now is the part where remembering that tidbit will come back. Yay! Because one of the famous things about this film was that in its teasers, it says inspired by true events, and that built audience anticipation. They tried to figure out what this film could possibly have been inspired by. Bertino actually comes right out and says exactly what he was talking about. The production notes of this film say that the film uh, was inspired by true events, true events from his childhood, uh, where he says, as a kid, I lived in a house on a street in the middle of nowhere. One night, while our parents were out, somebody knocked on the front door and my little sister answered it. At the door were some people asking for someone who didn't live there. We later found out that these people were knocking on doors in the area and, if no one was home, breaking into the houses. That is definitely scary. I won't lie. That, again, we've talked about this before, but the most effective horror films, I think, are the ones where you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that I should actually be terrified of that. And I think that that's very scary. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, 
granted, uh, Bertino also does talk about some other influences. I mean, unsolved murder cases or cases where nobody was around to talk about that. Specifically, a book that was of a major influence to Bertino was a book called Helter Skelter, which is about the Manson murders. And it, which is also a very scary concept. Yeah, and he was just thinking about the Tate murders and realizing that these detailed descriptions had painted a story of what it was like in the house with the victims, but none of the victims knew about the Manson family or why it was happening to them. So from that, uh, he got really, really interested in telling the story from the victim's perspective. And that was from an interview with Shop Till You Drop. Great title. <laughs> Great, great title. <laughs> yeah, it really is. He also, of course, is paying homage to films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. So here we have Toby Hooper's 1974 film that opens with what looks like, you know, footage, crime scene footage, and there's the, you know, this gravelly voice narrator that's telling us that the, about that what we're about to see is, is real, and we're like, ew, it's so scary. And, and he's right. There are events like the Tate murders and things like that. We do have instances in American history where we have similar situations. However, I want to, like, claim back my original problem with this film because I want my new problem to be this use of the inspired by true events because I am driven crazy. No, I'm driven crazy (laughs) by this because you said this yourself. Almost any, not just horror film, film could stay inspired by true events. And you know in your heart of hearts, anytime it says that, what they really mean is, so one time I lived in a house and, you know, the lights went out and it was spooky for five minutes. Like, you could use that as an inspired by true events for the strangers. And I just, I feel it is time to set that trope free into the wilderness to let it fend for itself and maybe very possibly either die or come back stronger having survived. Got it. Gotta disagree with you here. I, I think that that he uses it quite effectively here to really just drive home the fact that situations like this happen all the time. They happened in this neighborhood. Didn't have, it didn't happen to him, but it happened in this neighborhood. And of course, not to the same extent as what happened in The Strangers. It was just people breaking into the houses that no one was home. It wasn't actual combat. But he's using that that situation, something that's very familiar, and he's heightening it. Okay, I'm all for the, actually, if you said inspired by true events, and then when someone was like, Anthony, what were the true events? If you said, I just wanted to put that in there because I find it more scary, I would be more okay with that (laughs) than with, well, one time someone answered the door and and they wanted to know if someone was home. Like, to me, that I just, Write I what can't. you know. Write what you know. Yeah, but then don't, if you're going to write what you know, just know that everyone else is writing what they know. And you don't need to put inspired by true events. Because everything's inspired by true events. All I'm saying is I think it was a very effective way. It got it definitely an effective way to not only promote the film, but also get you thinking about the real world implications that this film has. And how this really, truly could happen to anybody. Situations like this do happen. They do. And they do happen in scary ways, like with with the Tate murders, you know, where Sharon Tate is, there's no reason she should have been killed by the Manson family, no. other than the fact that she kind of was just there, right? And that she also represented... The wrong place, yeah. wrong times type of so situation. So again, I, I'm more than willing to embrace the scariness of the fact that, like, things happen in the real world. But I think we all know that, right? Like, don't we know that murder, it happens a lot? Like, don't we just know that already? I mean, sure. Sure. But I, I like, I'm more okay with this inspired by a true events than I am in most like historical dramas that take so many liberties, but still put this tag there. 
This I'm far more okay with an inspired by true events situation because it's just serving to make the film more powerful. I really think this is a film that manages to be powerful. As a slasher film, you can go in and just enjoy this and you can enjoy watching people be, you know, systematically hunted down, but it also yeah. works. You could just turn your brain off and just eat some popcorn. Absolutely. And you'll enjoy it. And that's fantastic. Like, how often do you have films that can work both just as a brain candy level and as a, but if you want, here are some deeper thoughts level. I think that's just an amazing accomplishment. And that's why I think this film deserves attention because it's, you're, they're right. The critics are right. This is a fun film, but fun and thoughtful do not have to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. And, as always, if you liked what you heard here, be sure to give us a like, give us a share, tell all your friends about us, uh, share us on social media, do all that jazz, all that fun stuff, uh, and be sure you tune in to us next time, where we will be talking about the 2018 film Hereditary. With much less love than we have shown to the strangers. Yes, so come back, join us, and I'm sure it will be such a nightmare. Nailed it. Nailed, Nailed the it. ending. That's it. That's it. That's how you do the ending. <laughs> <laughs>